Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this eighth episode of Series 5, we're going to be looking at the future of financial services and the sheer breadth of the regulatory change agenda out there. Now, compliance officers among you will be all too familiar with the concept of regulatory change. After all, it is the gift that does keep on giving. And regulatory change management is a core competency for all risk and compliance functions. Now, Sources of regulatory change are multiple and can range from those cascaded from the supranational bodies, such as the Financial Stability Board, that operates under the Aegeus of the G20, to the domestic jurisdiction-specific rulemaking. Firms potentially have to be able to deal with the entire spectrum of the regulatory change, and certainly will have to if they want to engage in lobbying or otherwise seek to shape their own regulatory futures. So what are the hotspot areas likely to need compliance attention in the coming months and years? Do you know what? We could have a shopping list on this, but there is a short but very dense list. You've got ESG, sanctions, shift of the regulatory perimeter to capture more of the crypto marketplace, focus on increasingly vulnerable customers as the cost of living crisis bites. You've also got shifting regulatory expectations when it comes to all aspects of operational resilience. And I suspect operational resilience is becoming more of a compliance activity than just op risk. And that's before we even get to the considering the how of financial services regulation and indeed the spectre of personal liability a lot to potentially cover. To consider the continuing compliance challenges associated with regulatory change, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson, Todd Errett, and David Bickley. Hello, everyone. Hello there. Happy to be here. Thanks, Susanna. Oh, well, thanks, guys, as ever, for joining. Um, David, if we could start with you and the UK and the UK Direction of travel on all things financial services. Where are we at the moment? Oh, it's a big area to cover. Um, I thought I'd probably lead in by talking about the uh, Financial Services Markets Bill, which is coming down the tracks fairly shortly. It was announced uh, in the Queen's speech the other month that we would be seeing a Financial Services Markets Bill um, during this Parliament. Uh, we haven't actually, at least at time of recording, seen the bill yet. Um, Treasury has suggested it might be published before the summer recess, uh, which would take us to before the 22nd of July, I think. And there are suggestions, I think, in the press that it might coincide with a Mansion House speech, which I think is about the 19th. So we'll see. But even though we've not seen the bill, we've seen a fair amount of information from the Treasury in the briefing notes to the bill and other materials, which give a good indication of what's likely to be in it. And... Um, I think they give a good indication of where regulation is going in the UK at present, at least on the legislative side. And with the bill, um, a financial services bill is what the government uses crudely to amend anything it needs to amend using primary legislation. So if you want to amend the current Financial Services and Markets Act, use a financial services bill. If you want to give powers to government to amend legislation, you use a financial services bill. And at the moment, crucially, if you want to amend uh, level one retained EU law, 
you need to use a financial services bill, or at least primary legislation of some kind. As I say, we're expecting it fairly shortly, and we have some indication of what's going to be in there at the moment, but especially financial services bills have a tendency to, to grow as they rumble through Parliament. And I think the fairly discreet areas we've seen at present are likely to expand over time as the government seeks to, to cram more and more reforms into it. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on because I think it could be used to set the direction of travel in quite a lot of areas um, over the next years or few years or so. And I could talk for many podcasts on what's likely to be in it. And so I'll spare your pain and maybe just focus on some of the things that have come out of the government's uh, future regulatory framework review. Um, this was a sort of post-Brexit initiative and, as it says, intended to determine what changes might be needed to the UK's financial services framework to cope with being outside the EU. And it's been rumbling on for a few years. Uh, the I might be overtaken by events here, but the last major paper we saw on it, from the government at least, was a consultation back in November so that gives that probably the best indication of direction of travel. But I'd be expecting to see a formal response any time now, basically. And we can expect to see some results from that in the financial services markets bill. In terms of the regulatory architecture, um, I'm relieved to say that it's not going to be as overwhelming as, say, the old Financial Services Markets Act or the Financial Services Act from 2012, which made major changes to the uh, nature of the regulators in the UK. It's going to be sort of less dramatic than that, but there will be changes. Um, the one definite change we know that's coming is that the regulators will be given a secondary objective to advance long-term economic growth and international competitiveness. And in crude legal terms, what that means is that when they take action to advance their primary statutory objectives, they have to the regulators have to act in a way that advances second, uh, this secondary objective of um, economic growth and international competitiveness. And this comes from discussions about the UK needing to uh, be aware of its place in the wider world of regulation being a point of, of difference uh, if you are seeking to make the UK attractive as a place to do business. Um, it has caused a lot of debate. There were concerns uh, that it might lead to a uh, reduction of standards, um, a bonfire of regulations, and the government has made lots of noises that won't be the case. Um, I think we have to wait and see, uh, see how that actually operates in practice. In terms of other areas, it's thin on the ground that we know for definite, but I would expect to see uh, further scrutiny measures, further measures to increase the accountability of the regulators, and the FCA and the PRA are in a very powerful position post-Brexit, by accident, perhaps, because they have inherited a lot of the lawmaking powers that were previously taken by the EU legislators and the European supervisory authorities. And as a consequence of having greater powers, there have been calls for greater scrutiny. Linz, do you want to jump in on regulatory scrutiny? Um, yes, certainly. It's just following on from um, what David, uh, um, the excellent setup that David has given. I'm just going to uh, inject a bit of what's uh, going to happen most likely when this hits our lawmakers in the houses of, um, especially the House of Lords, to be perfectly honest. Um, we had a report this month from the EU House of Lords EU Affairs Committee, 
um, and into um, and in the nicest possible way, it was saying, where is this Brexit dividend for financial services? Um, and in your reply to our report, we would like a timeline against all the bits of financial services legislation you are planning and you have said we will we will um we will get round to sorting and and, and, and you know and as as as, as david has is aptly set out you know we're, we're not so sure yet about exactly what's going to go in we've had um you know five years six years worth of speeches about things that might get changed but they want a timeline against this um in the when the government replies to them so there's a sense that lawmakers are are definitely starting to lose patience with the the pace and we you know and, and one of the 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 brexit dividends that we were supposed to get was it would be much easier to uh much much more straightforward to amend eu financial services rules to fit our markets once we were outside the eu and and to date that actually hasn't actually happened and so there's you know sort of a bit of pressure now to sort of get that done and um, also what might happen when this hits the house of lords um, and we had a forerunner of this last year when the financial services bill was going through possibly the year before as well the, the there are members of the house of lords who are very keen to kind of inject more uh control um uh, over and scrutiny over um, the powers and the um, that the FCA and the PRA are, are have been will be get will be getting once um, all of the rulebook is shifted to to them and the accountability measures and scrutiny measures um, and so I would expect to see some more uh, efforts there. Um, there has also been from the third sector organisations a move to have a have regards for financial inclusion inserted. Into now, so David uh, explained to you about um, uh, primary and secondary objectives. So the have regards sit are a level below that, and it, it, again, it's something that regulators should uh, consider. But there's a ranking order, and so um, I, I, the the uh, Treasury has actually said that it will think um, about the have regards. Um, uh, no, sorry. I stand corrected. The Treasury Select Committee has come out in support of giving the um, FCA a have regards. Um, I, I'm not sure where the Treasury is yet. So Treasury Select Committee, not the Treasury. Um, just so that was me on this on scrutiny. Um, we have a little bit more detail about how um, the Treasury Select Committee itself intends to step into this scrutiny role that it has been given in the financial services and markets bill um, they put out a, a, a paper last no, last month um, setting out how they intend to um, oversee the work of the regulators and review these files and I know we will come on to talk about later the um, the PRA strong and simple which is kind of the first one out the, out the gate um, but so they, the Treasury Select Committee are setting up a subcommittee, which at the moment has every single member of the Treasury Select Committee on it. But they are also alongside that to support them. Because um, don't forget, uh, in the European context, there's a staff of over 50 that review in, on econ that review financial services files. Um, the Treasury Select Committee um, has a staff of 12 that may grow. They're also bringing in some expertise from the wider parliamentary staff. And in addition, they can appoint an unlimited number of special advisors to help them on specific inquiries. And 
In the past, the EU Subcommittee for Financial Affairs has, for example, brought in distinguished law professors to act as that advisory role. So just a bit of a, a bit more detail because there was concern from the industry, especially that the Treasury Select Committee might not be up to the job of scrutiny. And so we now have a lot more detail about how that scrutiny is going to take place. Um, so moving on to what is, is uh, you know, what is being changed and everything. So we had uh, financial services, an update to the financial services grid in May um, the financial services grid, no, sorry, regulatory initiatives grid is um, currently 50 pages long. Okay. And that is supposed to give industry an idea of all the financial services uh, legislation or rules that are in play and a timeline for them. So um, as I said, it's 50 pages long. In the most recent um, update, there were 30 new initiatives and 31 of the existing initiatives had their timing updated. Um, an example of the new initiatives include the review of the overseas framework and the outsourcing to third parties. So they are substantial pieces of work in and of themselves. And so to you know, it, it, there's a lot to, um, and obviously we'll put a link to the grid, most recent grid in the show notes. Um, an example of the um, one of the delayed pieces of work, and it's not that much of a slippage, and we kind of already knew this was happening, is the consumer duty. Originally, we're supposed to get it in July. That's now slipped to Q3. Um, you know, so, um, you know, and obviously, that's the rules were supposed to be April. That's now Q2 next year. Um, so, just a bit there. Um, I also came across a very interesting document from the government called the Brexit Opportunities Catalogue, which has all of the onshored rules. If, and I'll put a link if anyone wants to look through um, for those opportunities when they come up. Um, flipping to the EU side, because obviously, uh, you know, uh, they are continuing to change their rules. The Kind of the most kind of up to date uh, on where we are with the various European files is the list of work in progress kept by the uh, Econ Committee of the European Parliament. That's 16 pages long. I'll put a link to that. So it's just, I'm, what I guess what I'm trying to emphasize here is the sheer scale and volume of regulatory change that is. Um, they are to be followed, tracked, and managed by compliance. And with that horrifying uh, uh, level of detail, I will I will stop, Susanna. And thank you very much, Linz. And that horrifying level of detail really only covers what's happening in the EU and the UK, and that's obviously only one part of the world. So there is even more horrifying levels of detail coming out of the US and the US regulatory change agenda. I think it's fair to say is unprecedented. So to move on to the US aspect to regulatory change, Todd, where are we? Huge amount of things going on. Um, interestingly, in the US, um, uh, particularly from a SEC perspective, um, the Securities and Exchange Commission and um, Commissioner or Chairman uh, Gary Gensler have embarked on a very ambitious um, rulemaking agenda. Um, year to date and, you know, since, um, um, I guess if we carry back to last year, there's presently approximately 26 different rule proposals out there. 
um, at various stages. Um, they cover the gamut from uh, ESG to uh, private funds, private fund disclosures, short selling disclosures, securities lending, um, market structure, um, gamification, um, or they they called it uh, digital engagement practices. Um, SPACs. I mean, you, you name it. It's it's a far-reaching agenda, um, covering a, a a wide swath of of areas. Um, the agency has been criticized primarily by call it the legal community, the lawyers out there, and also the industry to a certain extent um, for the size of these proposals and. The timeliness or the expediency. Um, typically, here when a new pro- rule proposal has been issued or gets issued, there's sixty to ninety day comment periods, and they often, you know, kind of leave them even open longer than that, um, and continue to consult with people, um, you know, informally and have a relatively long runway on some of these before really pushing them forward. Um, almost all these rules and some of which were six to 900 pages in length um, and were really in some cases, monumental changes um, were provided only a 30 day comment period. Um, there has been a fair amount of pushback by the largest law firms primarily saying even we can't swallow this higher fire hose of, of, of rule proposals that you've aimed at us. Um, so some of the, some of the rules have been actually reopened for comment, which, uh, rarely happens. Um, we're at an interesting point now in the midst of the summer and as Washington pretty much shuts down for the summer, uh, Capitol Hill and lawmakers go back to their districts, and many of them are up for re-election here in the November elections. Um, things kind of grind to a to a halt in Washington often. Um, with the political climate here in the U.S. is as tenuous or as fragile as it is, and divisive as it is, many feel that you know Chairman Gensler is going to try to get as much done while he can. Um, before the political climate may change in November. So which ones or which of these rules get, let's say, finalized before November is a bit of an open question, but I think there's there's going to be an attempt to try to finalize some of them, Call it, pick some of the low-hanging fruit that can be done quickly and easily where you know, where, um, you know, they can just clear their slate of them. And then others that are far more complex, you know, are, are a question whether, whether they attempt to finalize them before November. Um, there is very, there is a very big or or a, a significant chance that the political climate could change. And Gensler does not have the political support or backing to push forward with some of these, um, one of which you know would be some of the ESG and climate related proposals, with energy prices where they're at now in the United States and the public outcry 
I, there's there's a lot of people saying let's let's put the brakes on here for a second. We might not want to be di- embarking on this ambitious climate agenda when, frankly, right now we need more oil and we need to be doing things because of Russia, Ukraine, and global energy prices. So it's it's an interesting situation. I think also um, as it pertains to crypto or digital assets. The I call it the vaporization of sixty billion dollars of of wealth in the Terra Luna stablecoin collapse. Um, I think has shined a spotlight on um, a need for investor protection measures in you know in the area of, of you know digital assets or cryptocurrencies, especially you know to dive even be more specific um, with stablecoins. Um, I think stablecoins have clearly. Um, moved ahead of the other, let's say, NFTs or other digital assets. Um, anytime something's called stable and it's basically um, pitched or believed to be, you know, safe and secure and stable, you know, akin or, you know, basically the equivalent of a, a money market fund or, you know, a savings account and it, you know, evaporates o- literally overnight. Um, the regulators are going to jump all over that, and um, there there have been a lot of calls for stablecoin um, regulations. So, as for the current regulatory agenda right now that directly pertains to cryptos, is Reg ATS, which I think was six hundred pages. Um, Reg ATS basically is. Um, an existing regulation related to automated trading systems or trading platforms that trade securities predominantly now. The rule was proposed in late January or early February, and it the headline was that it was going to include the, the trading of other um, predominantly uh, treasury securities. However, interestingly, inside the rule proposal, there's no mention of the word exchange and there's no mention of the word digital assets or cryptos or Bitcoin or anything else. There is the mention of Internet Communications Protocol, which an Internet Communications Protocol is the equivalent of an online exchange and therefore call it through legal definitions or definitional word swap, if you want to call it that, um, they're attempting to basically bring in all of the um, uh, digital trading platforms, call it the, the the crypto exchanges, under the scope of their regulatory authority. Um, it was <laughs> when they first proposed the rule. I think it took the legal community two or three days before they even spotted that and connected the dots that this was their way to get into regulating the the exchanges and. Um, I think people now are watching that particular rule very closely as to, um, you know, if it means what they think it's going to mean. So it's it's an ambitious agenda. And like I said, I think it's 26 or 27 different rule proposals um, at various stages. And it's now just a question of priority and how which ones try to get finalized this year. And I and I believe you will see some clarity on some of them, maybe maybe as much as half or a quarter of them, but you know, 
imminently, um, call it September, October, before the November elections. Thank you. I mean, none of this is getting the workload of compliance officers any less. Let's be completely clear on that one. Um, um, uh, To shift gears very slightly, I mean, I mentioned in my introduction the how of financial services regulation, and if you like, almost the philosophical approach to it. Um, David, if I can come back to you, um, Lynn's mentioned this earlier, the PRA, which here in the UK regulates primarily banks and the big insurers and that sort of thing, they are shifting their or potentially shifting their approach to strong and simple. Now, that's a wonderful buzz line, but what is that actually likely to mean for regulation here in the UK? Well, this is um, an initiative that the PRA has kicked off. It relates to the banking sector, and it's tied in to a certain extent, I think, with the idea of trying to have post-Brexit freedoms of um, using the flexibility that maybe being outside the EU allows and it's primarily in the area of bank capital requirements, because at present, uh, banks' capital requirements are they're based on the Basel standards, which through the uh, capital requirements regulation, as it applies in the UK. And there have been criticisms that's a very much a, a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's uh, it's de- deterrent, or at least a, a bind on smaller banks and building societies. And, and the growth of challenger banks in the UK. So the PRA has um, been uh, considering for a while establishing a framework which they call the Strong and Simple Framework, which will, on current proposals, uh, involve a set of tiers of uh, regulation, a number of tiers to be determined. And the idea is the bank or building society becomes more becomes larger and becomes more systemically important, it will go up the tiers until finally, if it gets large enough, I assume it will end up with full-fat Basel standards. And it's interesting that that's the route the, the PRA is going down. It's maybe indicative of the direction of travel that they, the PRA is thinking generally. And there was an interesting speech a couple of months ago from Sam Woods, the PRA chief executive, about bank capital requirements, which... Uh, there was an extended metaphor involving cars, and he talked about establishing a regime known as the Bufferati, and which would involve a simpler but not less stringent capital requirements on the basis that the existing framework is disproportionately complex. And this was him sort of just flying high, perhaps, because obviously that would be something to be considered at the Basel level. But it's interesting that that's the way the PRA is thinking. Thank you. Yes. Um, Lynn, do you want to come in on that or, or should we move on now? Yeah, no, it was it was it was just to add to what David has said, um, referring back to uh, the scrutiny. The, the, so the this is going to be the first example of scrutiny of new proposals that lawmakers are going to do. And so the um, Treasury the subcommittee of the Treasury Select Committee, um, which is now going to take on this role of scrutiny, has um launched a call for evidence, um, which actually wraps up in mid-July, so you've not got long, um, on uh, specifically it's asking the question, you know, does the strong and simple uh, proposal go far enough? Is it actually going to reduce the cost burden sufficiently? Um, And and, um, so it's just really to highlight that, you know, we are well, a, a, a lot of what we're talking about in the future regulation framework and everything is 
still to be decided. It's down the road. At the same time, you know, these proposals from the PRA are, are being scrutinized by lawmakers now. And there is a call to, in, for, for, to industry. Well, actually, it's a call to everyone. But anyone that wants to give evidence has you know, till mid-July to you know, input into this process. So it was just a flag not to miss that opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, very, very valid point. I want to shift gears very slightly here and look at some things where, if you like, things external to purist financial service regulation are going to impact financial services. Um, And there's two elements I want to come to, one on this side of the pond, one on the other side of the pond. So, Linz, if I can come to you first on the UK online safety bill, that's potentially got all sorts of ramifications for uh, financial services. So, What's that beginning to look like and why should financial services firms be interested in an online safety bill? Well, actually, because hopefully their 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 compensation bill will go down. Um, that's certainly the view of uh, the banks. Who um, so in terms of so the online safety bill is a massive piece of legislation in the UK. It goes um, it, it it covers everything from child images online to fraud. Basically, it now has. Um, on a fraud, um, financial fraud, which is kind of um, perpetrated through social media or um, the, the search engine, everything. The, the, um, and the the bill, as it currently stands, would shift the burden of sort of compensating people and uh, responsibility and fines, and these fines are up to ten percent of of um, revenue. Senior managers in tech firms could potentially uh, end up being jailed, um, and and so so what happens at the moment is a lot of people, and there were figures from uh, UK Finance out yesterday showing a massive increase in um, just in the last. Uh, year of um, online fraud, which has uh, come from um, online sources. So social media um, or search engines, uh, the average investment loss through this type of scam is £14,000. So we are not talking about insignificant amounts. Um, In a lot of instances at the moment, returning money to individuals who have been caught in a scam. And this investment scam is just one example. There's also the, the rent scam, which catches out young, um, a, a tremendous amount of young uh, people who are studying in this country. They don't really understand how uh, our property, renting a property in this country works. And so when they're asked to put down a deposit in order to view a flat, they don't realize that that is a scam. This money is gone. Um, at the moment, the only recourse these people have is to go to their banks and hope that they can get the money back that way. Um, and it's costing the banks a fortune. Um, and so, you know, so they are in favor of, you know, a leveling of the accountability. This bill will, uh, in terms of financial services, hopefully do that. But what I wanted to highlight was since this bill has actually you know it's definitely you know started including financial services and online advertising as well so if if the um if google or uh tiktok or whoever place uh, allow an ad for financial services on their site somebody clicks on it causes harm in future they will be responsible for the harm um, and possibly uh you know giving people their money back um since this was announced the social media, a lot of the social media companies, though not Meta, 
uh, which is Facebook and Instagram, have actually started only allowing ads on their sites that um, have uh, that have been authorized by the Financial Services uh, Authority. Sorry, financial. I'm a decade out of date there. Uh, we'll we'll forgive you just this once. Go on then. <laughs> Thank you, um, Financial Conduct Authority. Um, and uh, Nicola Rathi, the chief executive of the FCA, gave a speech uh, last month in which he said that actually since Google has started doing this, uh, the incidents of financial uh, harm being from, originating from their site had, had become virtually nil. Um, unfortunately, um, the same cannot be said for uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, there was research by uh, the consumer organization in the UK just uh, um, in the final week of June, which showed that um, there were an awful lot of, actually they said insurance scams were rife on Instagram and Facebook who have not done a deal with the FCA yet to pre-vet adverts. Um, you know, there was one page which was a, a scam which had like uh, 45,000, 46,000 people following it on, on um, Instagram and um, the average loss. So, so the, Thing about insurance again, which is a um, if you don't have insurance, you're you know inadvertently you are potentially liable for not having insurance, even if you think you've bought it. You're not covered if you you know if you're scammed. And the sad thing is, a lot of people only realise that they've been scammed when they've been involved in an accident and um, they come to make a claim. So you know, so what the online safety bill will do, but what a lot of these uh, social media firms have started to do and search engines have started doing in, um, ahead of this is to actually amend their ways. So um, that's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting thing and it will be interesting to see um, how it plays out. Do you know, I think that counts as a good news story. I mean, be lovely <laughs> if Meta comes to the party, but that that's definitely, I would suggest anyway, a step in the right direction. Um, Bouncing to the other side of the pond, I mean, cryptos by and large are not regulated in the US, pretty much like everywhere else. That doesn't mean they're not being caught by other bodies, shall we say. We've got the Department of Justice bringing cases. We've got fraud provisions kicking in. Todd, insider dealing, fraud provisions, that cryptos getting done by any other way? Um <clears throat> Yes. Um, I would say it's going to be part of, you know, for the lack of a better de description, um, regulation is going to occur through enforcement. Um, and with each enforcement um, sets precedent. Um, interestingly, um, the SEC had um, actually served subpoenas and was investigating Terraform Labs and Do Kwan. Um, the, the CEO and founder of Terraform Labs, which, um, you know, was behind the collapse of the stablecoin. Um, I believe their investigation began last year and they served subpoenas in September to him and his organization. Um, although he tried to claim in court that they didn't have jurisdiction um, and appealed he lost on appeal, um, which it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, from a legal perspective. Um, but, uh, there, there surely are investigations going on. 
Uh, Department of Justice has brought uh, an insider trading case related to NFTs. Um, I think it's a pretty clear cut case, um, you know, of, you know, basically the fraud is fraud and you don't need a securities law um, specifying, you know, the whether or not something is a security or not, et cetera. Um, fraud is fraud. And as soon as you move the money associated with fraud, you violated AML laws. <laughs> so the 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 insider trading case at NF, uh, involving NFTs, um, they brought a, you know, uh, insider trading misuse or misappropriation of material non-public information for financial gain. And uh, then subse- the subsequent movement of the proceeds violated AML laws. That's the allegations in the insider trading case. Um the, so it didn't the, matter what what the NFT was classified as at all correct. at that point. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it, and and I think the more cases there are, and you know the Department of Justice obviously is very busy, um, you know, looking at you know online, you know, scams and and whatever they are, rug pulls or you know in in the digital asset universe. Um, the the case involving Terra, Terraform Labs and Do Kwan interestingly started out as a securities case, though. Um, they were investigating another project that Terraform was working on called the Mirror Protocol, which essentially they were creating synthetic derivatives of, of securities, allowing people to trade the equivalent of you know, a share of Amazon or Google or Apple or whatever. That, so they were they were launching something that was essentially an unregistered security, allegedly, um, you know, an unregistered derivative of a security um, on their trading platform. That that's what the initial investigation was based upon. Um, I'm sure they're looking at a lot more now. <laughs> so it, there's also a need for international coordination. Um, because it's been reported by Reuters and others, uh, um, South Korea, because uh, Terraform is a Singapore company based in South Korea. Um, you have two other governments involved there, um, you know, and there's all kinds of allegations. I think there were, um, they believe, hundreds of thousands, I think 200 plus thousand um, South Koreans that may have been duped in the uh, or may have incurred losses in the, um, the uh, uh, stablecoin meltdown at Terraform. Um, interestingly, though, despite the law enforcement efforts and the, you know, call it attempt by law enforcement to crack down on these, um, within three weeks of the collapse of Terraform and the stablecoin, they launched Terra 2.0 and dropped, I think they said, uh, uh, did an airdrop into existing holders and new holders of nearly a billion wallets globally. So, and then Terra 2.0 has now declined to nearly 90% in value since the end of June. 
or excuse me, since the end of May when it was, when it happened. Terraform. Fool me once, fool me twice. I yeah. mean, really. <laughs> it, it, it's, it was truly remarkable that, you know, I think they they estimate the pair, Terraform or Terra USD and Terra Luna, the two coins that were, you know, intrinsically linked to one another and backing one another, um, were all wiped out approximately 60 billion in value in the first week of May. On, I think it was May 29th, Terra 2.0 was launched um, as part of a rescue plan and the new iteration of the, of the blockchain and the coins and have now declined 90% in value. So, I mean, regulators yeah, and okay, have I, their hands yeah, full. Prejudice is showing again. This is financial crisis all over again. You have rehypothecated collateral so many times it is completely worthless. So when the rug is pulled, everything collapses. I, I, I think that the, the current meltdown in the crypto market, I think, has a lot of the hallmarks of the financial crisis. I mean, we're talking on a much, much smaller scale. We're talking only, you know, only a trillion dollars, um, whereas you know, of, of, of wealth that has been wiped away. But I think there's a realization that there was a lot of leverage embedded in this system that nobody knew about, um, you know, rehypothecation and, you know, collateral and, you know, literally embedded leverage inside. You've now seen, you know, a, a hedge fund that is now in liquidation. You're seeing this uh, Celsius, which was a lending platform, um, is has frozen um, withdrawals. Um, you're, you're talking some relatively, you know, what people thought were established, big, legitimate institutions that have uh, had to throw, you know, slam the brakes on, and uh, are probably in need of of some sort of support or bailout or additional capital in order to go forward. Um, and it's it's spreading. There is contagion, if if you want to use that term, in the crypto market. Thankfully, by, by all accounts, uh, OCC um, uh, comptroller of the currency here in the U.S., Michael Shu, gave a speech recently that said he's not seeing any contagion into the traditional financial markets as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, um, yeah, you know, and, and honestly, thankfully. as large as the other financial system is, um, you know call it on a global basis the the amount of exposure to cryptos or digital assets is 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 minimal or is minuscule it, it may be minimal but all of these factors we've just discussed will drive more regulatory change right because you know 60 billion whilst a drop in the ocean compared to financial services globally that's still potentially a lot of retail investors who've lost an awful lot of money it's it's bigger than and, the bernie madoff ponzi scheme it, to, yeah. to keep it in perspective, and mm. how many of those were U.S. investors? Uh, no, I, I don't think anybody's really put their finger on it. I think that was predominantly South Korean and international investors, but there, there certainly were U.S. investors that that you know, or U.S. traders or what have you. It, it, you know, the the crypto industry got burned, and uh, mm. it it it. it it emphasizes the need for regulatory, you know, boundaries, framework, you know, safeguards, etc. That's a perfect way to end the main part of the podcast. Thank you very much, everyone. I mean, we're, we could talk 
endlessly about the ramifications of regulatory change. But moving on to the more specific takeaways for compliance officers, the one I would add in, even if you are a domestic um, firm, in other words, most of your business is, is local and domestic, don't forget the regulatory change that could impact you might arise overseas. For instance, there are all sorts of extraterritorial laws from pretty much every jurisdiction you can think of. So please do keep that horizon scanning going so you're not caught on the hop by something extraterritorially that applies to you. I mean, sanctions is a very good example, for instance. Um, fraud laws, another one. And also understand that you may well need to navigate a very uneven international regulatory approach on a whole bunch of stuff because regulatory coherence internationally, still a bit of um, a wishful thinking on most parts. There are good sides to that. Equally, it does raise costs for firms in particular. Linz, from your perspective, takeaways? Um, yes, just just the one. Um, the cost of living crisis will probably hijack the regulatory agenda and could push timelines back on um, other things. I mean, already um, in the UK, um, we've seen uh, in the last two weeks, three different Dear CEO letters to various segments of the lending uh, of lend various segments of lenders, and also the I think the largest ever audience of so the three thousand five hundred uh, firms who got one on uh, lenders who got one on um, uh, treating their customers kind of fairly when they're in arrears and and everything. Um, so I think we will, if the crisis, cost of, current cost of living crisis, inflation crisis results in more borrowers falling into further behind in arrears or following into arrears, we start to see more houses being repossessed and everything. I think the FCA will have to divert more resource to dealing with that. And it could push back some important other reforms, um, you know, that we've, we've been talking about, uh, sort of the post-Brexit reforms. Um, and uh, yeah, leave it there. Thank you. Todd, come back to you for takeaway. Or takeaways? Um, like I said, I, the, the agenda is aggressive here, and uh, um, it's a matter of um, I think a lot of people are really cognizant of the November elections and how much is going to get done before then and what the priority will be. Um, similar to what Lindsay just said, the cost of living slash inflation slash energy crisis that's occurring right now. Um, I, th I, th I personally believe um, will cause the, the aggressive ESG climate agenda po to possibly be paused. Um, you've seen real advocates, um, you know, who have pushed this agenda to, to temporarily say, well, maybe we need to extend our, our horizon a little further, um, longer implementation period. Um, They've they, they, there's undoubtedly a tapping of the brakes um, because you know frankly you know the, the the Russian energy you know situation in Europe is the U.S. going to try to ramp up production and try to help with this issue you know that's that's a, a variable that is now I think uh, being being discussed um, I I think also the sanctions situation surrounding Russia is is a monumental, really big effort. I was at a the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners conference last week, 
and it's all they were talking about was sanctions and just the the sanctions associated with Russia are you know just monumentally larger than than anything they've ever dealt with before so it, it's a full a full agenda and a full plate a lot of things and we'll we should have some clarity in the next few months thank you and um, david takeaways from you I think my takeaways follow on from things we've discussed already um, to do with retained EU law and the transfer of that law. Um, because as Lindsay said, there have been calls for more precision about when sort of these dossiers of EU law are likely to be transferred across into the regulator rule books. And so far, we don't have that much information. But when it happens, um, I think firms will probably need to start preparing for a scale of change similar to that which would have applied back pre-Brexit for when you were preparing, say, for the advent of MIFID or MIFID II, because it's possible that some reforms will be done with minimal changes, but I would expect there to be um, policy changes going along with them um, if the government decides that should be one reform should be aligned with another. And in terms of crystal ball gazing um, to see what might happen, I would... I would suggest it's very much worth keeping an eye on what the EU is up to, because whether whether the UK likes it or not, the UK and the EU are in, practically going to be in constant regulatory dialogue now for the foreseeable future. And an initiative from the EU side will probably have some sort of reaction from the UK side, whether it's to follow discreetly or whether it's to diverge, there will be a reaction. So keep an eye on what the EU is up to, as well as what the Treasury is doing in terms of future large-scale impacts on your business. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you all um, for listening um, to this particular episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, do hope you found it both interesting and useful. There will be a stack of links in the episode notes, which um, will lead you down all sorts of rabbit holes in terms of lots more regulatory change coming your way. We've opened the survey for our annual FinTech, RegTech and Royal Compliance Report. So if you would like to take part in that, that link also will be in the episode notes. The usual link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. And last but not least, very much appreciated if you take the time to review the podcast and do let us know for any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.